You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. The Gilded Age was, to state the obvious, a time to show off. If you had the money, of course. And for those who did, there just seemed to be no limits. And one of the most immediate, visible, and talked about ways that you could show off was with what you served on your table. Stories have floated around about the outrageousness of dinners and balls, including place settings of gold, courses of peacock and truffles, and dinners which we'll discuss, that included live swans and horses. No, I don't mean to eat. These stories, my friends, are actually all true. However, there is so much more to say about food and dining in the Gilded Age, and this show takes you into the dining rooms, the ballrooms, and down into the kitchens to give you all a taste, so to speak, of how it all came to be. Now, I really have to issue this disclaimer right here. Do not listen to this episode unless you plan to have a meal directly following, because I can pretty much guarantee you'll be fairly hungry at the end. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks over a nice cup of tea, I'll take you into the worlds of glitter and gold and explore all that lay underneath during America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian periods. I, like so many of you, I am sure, have been so anxiously anticipating the launch of the new Julian Fellows series on HBO, The Gilded Age. I certainly loved Downton Abbey, but the reason that I love all of Julian Fellow's work is because of the details that he includes in his settings, in his characters, and in his stories. In this new series, The Gilded Age, I must admit that I was anxiously awaiting to see the details of, you guessed it, the food. And so you can imagine my excitement when we were shown in episode one of this first season the lavish supper that was laid out on the banquet buffet at Bertha Russell's grand party. You know, the one to which no one came. Now, looking at those towers of puff pastry and ornately decorated roasts and garnishes that actually even themselves had garnishes on them, the message was really clear. Food, like fashion, architecture, and the right address, was used to prove that you had arrived and that you had money to burn. Even more importantly, you were taking your cues from European style and culture. Louis XIV may have been long gone at this point, but there was really no good reason why you just shouldn't recreate the splendor of Versailles on any old Monday night. In the first episode of The Gilded Age, I scanned that banquet table looking for dishes that I knew from my research, and it took me about three seconds to find the one that I most expected to find. Near the head of the table, 
next to a candelabra, occupying pride of place, was what looked like to me a faithful recreation of the famous salmon a la chambord. Now, this dish, salmon a la chambord, and I do invite you to visit my Instagram account at Carl the Gilded Gentleman or my website to actually see an image. This is the one that, for me, encapsulates most of what we need to know about the kind of food that was found on the tables of the fictional Russells, but on the very real tables of the Vanderbilts, Astors, Goulds, and Morgans. The basis of this dish is a salmon, of course, but it involves making a paste of whitefish with lobster coral, covering the fish, baking it again with the flavoring of strips of bacon and champagne, then decorating it all with truffles and serving it with a brown sauce infused with more mushrooms and anchovy butter. If you followed all of that, I promise you it really gets easier from here. Aside from its actual creation, the message that would have been sent by serving this kind of dish was based on who created the actual recipe in the first place. The inventor behind this over-the-top assemblage of fish and truffles, decorated with crayfish and more mushrooms and truffles, was the Victorian celebrity chef Charles Elmay Francatelli. Francatelli was a chef that never worked in America, and it seems he never even set foot here, but his influence was found in Gilded Age kitchens of the 1870s and 80s in all the best houses. Charles Elmay Francatelli had been in royal service as a chef to Queen Victoria from 1840 to 1842, and while his period in Her Majesty's kitchens at Buckingham Palace was short, his influence, due to his great marketing savvy, was long. The story goes, and there are several murky versions of it, that he was unhappy in royal service because of the inadequate conditions in the palace kitchens. Seems the drainage wasn't quite what it could have been, as well as in part to the unadventurous palates of the royal household. He found it difficult to show off. He was born British, but of Italian parentage, and he'd gone off to Paris to, as he told it, train with the great Marie-Antoine Carême, the father of fine cooking of 19th century France, and many said, and still do, our first real celebrity chef. Francatelli wanted to create theater at the table, and he returned to royal service again later in his career, this time with perhaps the best royal who could appreciate a bit of an outlandish meal— and that was Prince Albert Edward, known as Bertie, who loved nothing more than a show-stopping dinner and, you know, a little flirtation afterwards. But Francatelli published, as did any chef of any level of that time, and certainly of today. His books, beginning with The Modern Cook, traveled beyond England and landed in the kitchens of Gilded Age New York. An example of this that I dearly love is in Edith Wharton's memoir, A Backward Glance. In describing the kitchen of her 1870s childhood and adolescence, she notes that her mother kept a well-worn copy of Francatelli on her shelves. Now, I want to immediately clarify that Wharton's mother would never have opened it to cook from herself, but she would certainly have consulted with her hired cooks what should be prepared for the next dinner party, designed, of course, to impress her guests. 
To have a chef in your kitchen that could replicate a dish by Francatelli meant that you'd hired someone who likely had European training, and you have more than one of your kitchen staff available to handle these kind of dishes. And perhaps most of all, any table that offered a dish like salmon a la Chambon gave off a whiff of a royal connection, faintly imagined though it may have been. For those of you who are fans of the great Martin Scorsese 1993 adaptation of Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence, when you re-watch it, you will see again a recreation of the Salmon a la Chambord at the fictional dinner hosted by Henry and Louisa van der Leiden, taking place in the early years of the Gilded Age, the mid-1870s. The two other great chefs who influenced food a bit later in the Gilded Age were Charles Ranhofer, the famed chef of Delmonico's whom we visited in a recent show, and the great Auguste Escoffier, who, as a chef at both London's Savoy Hotel and the Paris Ritz in the years before the outbreak of World War I, it was he who reimagined food in a way no one had since Antoine Carême, and both chefs, of course, published books. One of my favorite quotes that I often use to explain this age was actually uttered by the great Dowager Countess of Grantham in Fellows, Downton Abbey, who ironically proclaims, nothing succeeds like excess. And by this point, I think you can clearly see how that applies here. Aside from the showing off at the table in terms of dishes and display of china and glassware, which we'll get to, The Gilded Age dinner party functioned on several levels to achieve a very specific goal. First of all, a dinner would act as a kind of vetting exercise to determine if the invited guests were appropriate to bring more deeply into the levels of society, and could of course then be acknowledged. In the days of old New York, the early 1800s, the city was sort of a large town with families related to each other and most with whom one wanted to do business were known to each other. But of course, by the Gilded Age, with the invaders pounding on the gates, anyone with a fortune could hold power, and one's actual ancestry held far less sway than one's trading ability on Wall Street. A dinner party could be a testing ground to see how one acted. Were one's manners and etiquette appropriate? Well, if you passed, you may advance on to perhaps the greatest invitation of them all, Mrs. Astor's grand annual opera ball. And if you didn't, Well, there was usually still time to catch that midnight train back to whatever provincial little town from which you had tried to escape. But for a population with too much money, and at least for many, way too much time, a dinner party had become a new form of entertainment, and society hostesses knew this cold. The idea was to create an atmosphere of delight and amusement as you quaffed your Moet Chandon, 1888, and savored your canvasback duck. One of Mrs. Astor's great society competitors was the ruthless Mamie Fish, who once had the center of her great dining table carved out and a great tank inserted with goldfish and toy boats bobbing on the surface to give, oh, you know, that nautical feel to a Manhattan mansion and to give her guests something to occupy them if they didn't actually want to talk to their fellow guests. By mid-century, the way a dinner was served had changed. In the early years of the 19th century, and certainly in the century before, the 18th century, in Europe and even here, a dinner would have been served in courses, but not as we know them now. 
They were called removes in Britain, and diners would enter a dining room with all the dishes for the first course laid out on the table at the same time, perhaps up to 20 depending on the elegance of the meal. Savory and sweet dishes appeared at the same time along with the accompanying vegetables. Soup would have been the only thing that was brought in at the beginning of a meal and then taken away. The entire table would have been cleared and a second remove would have been laid again of upward of 10 or 12 dishes, including what we think of as desserts. Now, many accounts argue as to when and how the change occurred to become service à la Russe, but certainly the shift was made before the early years of the Gilded Age. This was a style known as Russian style, which is the style that we think of today. One dish served on its own, followed by another, and another, and another, and so on, until the highly anticipated and inevitable dessert. Service à la Russe was critical to the showiness of a Gilded Age dinner, since it required a great deal more china, more silver, more glassware, not only for the diners, but also to bring and serve the food. All of this meant that the great silver makers such as Tiffany and Gorham were thrown into overdrive, creating the most specific pieces of flatware to serve, in some cases, one single thing. You, of course, had to buy all of these items for a properly laid table and, as yet, one further opportunity to exhibit the amount of silver that you owned. Diners found themselves confronted with an astonishing array. And let's just take the spoons. Macaroni spoons, pea spoons, jelly spoons, confectionery spoons, caviar spoons, horseradish spoons, citrus spoons, and of course, ice cream spoons. As silver makers cranked out more and more and more, you had to stay up to date in order not to make a mistake as you spooned your way up the social ladder. Glassware was, of course, similar. Glasses for champagne, and claret, and white wine, and red wine, and sauterne, and port. And then there was that finger bowl filled with water, often with citrus slices floating in it, that etiquette manuals reminded the undereducated and uninitiated not to drink. What your table service was made of also counted. Sevres and Meissen or Royal Crown Derby certainly conveyed a level of importance, and some hostesses went far beyond that. Mrs. Astor famously had a dinner service in gold plate, which recalls the famous story of Louis XIV, who, when served a dinner on gold plate by his finance minister, realized that some of the francs were being siphoned out of the royal coffers and had his minister immediately imprisoned. I mean, when you serve a dinner on dishes of gold, people do start to wonder... As I say many times, to get the closest and most accurate representation of many of the social customs in the Gilded Age, we must dip into the work of Edith Wharton. Particularly in her later works, such as The Age of Innocence, she is scrupulous in the details that she presents and why she presents them. So much of what you need to know about Gilded Age dinner parties can be found in the dining scenes that she gives us. One of the most memorable is the final dinner that we see in the Age of Innocence, and this is the dinner given by the newly married Newland Archer and the former May Welland. Under a camouflage of a first dinner party given by a married couple, this is a dinner about loss, sadness, and judgment, as the tribe of Old New York is effectively casting Ellen Olenska out and sending her back to Europe after a scandalous affair that they can't ignore. 
We'll look at the details of the dinner in in just a moment, but that in and of itself illustrates another important point about Gilded Age dinners. Diners were rarely there to simply enjoy the food with collegial friends and acquaintances. You were invited most often to a dinner to be seen, assessed, judged, and evaluated under the guise of a tightly controlled, etiquette-regulated affair. What was going on under the gold plate was often a whole other story. Now, to return to the Archer dinner, Edith Wharton tells us the following. It was expected that well-off young couples in New York should do a good deal of informal entertaining, and a Welland married to an Archer was doubly pledged to the tradition. But a big dinner with a hired chef and two borrowed footmen with Roman punch, roses from Henderson's, and menus on gilt-edged cards was a different affair and not to be lightly undertaken. As Mrs. Archer remarked, the Roman punch made all the difference not in itself, but by its manifold implications, since it signified either canvasbacks or terrapin, two soups, a hot and a cold sweet, full décolletage with short sleeves, and guests of a proportionate importance. Here, each detail of food, table settings, and structure of the meal means something. My particular favorite being the appearance of a Roman punch, which signified the choice of dress for such a meal. Now, I want to use this passage to explain two things. One, to address the ubiquitous canvas backs and terrapin, and secondly, to briefly walk you through just how a dinner such as this would have proceeded. Turtle soup had been a favorite on the English Georgian tables at the end of the 18th century as sailors figured out how to transport these incredible creatures from the Caribbean back to England. The taste continued onto American tables, and in the Gilded Age, it was the diamondback terrapin, which is a freshwater species native to the marshy wetlands. The name terrapin derives from the original Algonquin name, particularly along the mid-Atlantic coast. Once incredibly plentiful, the slow breeding cycle and the drastic over-harvesting led to a dramatically reduced terrapin population, and by the years of the Gilded Age, the price for this completely endangered creature was high. One of the greatest lifelines to saving the terrapin was Prohibition, enacted in 1919. The preparation of terrapin required sherry, the drink, and with alcohol prohibited as well, and legislation coming prohibiting commercial harvesting of terrapin, the population was finally left alone. The classic dish as it appeared on Gilded Age tables would have been a sort of stew made with chunks of meat and sherry, Madeira, rich stock, and perhaps a bit of cream and butter. The canvasback duck shared the similar history and fate of the terrapin, although an actual ban on hunting then was imposed in the early 1900s, which brought them back from the brink of extinction. Canvasbacks were prized for their deep, red, flavorful meat, usually served with a hominy cake and a sauce of currants, claret or port, orange or ginger, and a bit of vinegar. A formal dinner like this could include eight or nine courses, even up to twelve. Your first taste was likely some oysters or perhaps a bit of caviar. Then you began with soup, one, if not two, And Wharton has been very specific here about the inclusion of two. A light clear consomme or bouillon, followed by a creamier soup, creme of asparagus or mushroom, perhaps? You would only receive about a half a ladleful if there were two. Fish was next, and it was served on its own with no vegetable accompaniments. 
The principal meat course was next, and it was called a relevé, which was not plated ahead of time, and you served it yourself from a waiter's offered tray. You see, now, the need for all those extra footmen. And then would come the entrée or the entremet, which were lighter dishes like foie gras. I did say lighter. And this is where you would have found the terrapin. The roast was next. This was often game or the canvas backs, and it would be served with vegetables, though once again, you served yourself from a waiter's tray. A salad was next if served, and it could be served with the roast course itself. Now, this is not a tossed salad, as we might imagine, but a mixture of diced, sliced, pickled, or cured vegetables, sometimes in a mold. The meal ended with a selection of desserts, both hot and cold, including almost certainly the ubiquitous ice cream. Wharton notes a Roman punch would have been served in the middle. The appearance of a Roman punch at a Gilded Age dinner indicated the real importance of the occasion. Roman punch in the Gilded Age was not really a cocktail. It was more of a heavily iced palate cleanser between courses at a formal dinner, if you will. It has since been fashioned into a modern cocktail. Delmonico's preparation from 1894 for Roman Punch presents it as a lemon-flavored ice with Italian meringue whipped in and copious additions of rum and champagne and encourages the addition of other spirits of your own choosing and advises the punch should be sufficiently liquid to be drunk without using a spoon and as soon as served. Serve in upright glasses provided with handles. The Roman punch went out of style as the Gilded Age dimmed, and by the 1920s, when she published her first edition of her Bible on Etiquette, the great Emily Post pronounced it passé. It is, of course, time now to take a break. I'm going to refill my teacup, but I want you to imagine you were at a formal dinner with Roman punch about to be served. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today we're taking a look at the world of food and dining at some very select Gilded Age dinner parties. We've talked a lot in this show already about dining at home, which for a great deal of the 19th century is what dining out actually meant. But now I want to take a look at the world of dining out in this time, some private dinners in the grand restaurants. And Briefly, share at least a couple of dinners that would have been pretty hard to pull off at home. The Last Supper that we will visit takes place as part of a grand ball in the mansion of Mrs. Astor herself. As the Gilded Age hit full force starting in the early 1880s, New York and America was taking its cue from Paris. Paris as a city was evolving too, and throughout the 19th century, the city was transforming from its cramped medieval structure to the glamorous stage set that it wanted the world to see. 
As grand boulevards replaced the tiny congested streets, Parisian life moved onto the wide sidewalks and the restaurants, the dramatic new form of entertainment, competed with the grand performances at opera houses and theaters as to which could actually put on a bigger show. Restaurant dining rooms were designed for one to see and be seen with balconies and grand staircases, enormous mirrors, and huge chandeliers reflecting the light. And the dishes arriving at the table were culinary architectural masterpieces with complicated sauces and elegantly sculptured presentations. New York kept its golden diamond-edged binoculars trained on the restaurant scene in Paris and created as much of it as possible here. Many say Delmonico's established the concept of fine dining here in America, at least in New York, and other restaurants such as the Maison Dorée, named for the restaurant of the same name on Paris's Boulevard des Italiens and the hotel dining rooms of the Fifth Avenue Hotel and the Brunswick, made an attempt to infuse an essence of Paris in the rapidly developing entertainment districts of Union and later Madison Squares. We are definitely entering the world of extravagant dining designed to impress. One of the most legendary of all the dinners at Delmonico's was the famous Swan Dinner in 1874. Importer Edward Luckmeyer had found himself with a bit of a windfall with an extra $200,000 burning a hole in his pocket, and he decided to tell Charles Delmonico, the famed restaurateur, to do whatever he wished for a spectacular dinner for 72 of Luckmeyer's best friends. Guests arrived to find the dining room had been transformed into a country scene as if they were in the middle of Central Park. And to describe it, I quote from our friend from a recent show, Ward McAllister. His account in his memoir is a great one, and he should know because he was there. The tables were covered the whole length and breadth of the room, and every inch of it was covered with flowers except for the center left for a lake. It was an oval pond nearly the width of the table enclosed by delicate golden wire reaching from the table to the ceiling, making one grand cage. Four grand swans swam in it. Above the entire table were little golden cages with songbirds who filled the room with their melody, interrupted occasionally by the splashing in the lake of the swans. Tiffany had spared no expense in creating the cage. And you sat at your place around the table with enough room for your table setting and glasses and a hedge of flowers in front of you to prevent you from being splashed by the swans. With all of that going on, how could you really pay attention to the food? But if you think this is as outrageous as it got, I do have some further news for you, my friends. As we landed at what some say was the very height of the Gilded Age in the early to mid-1880s, a serious competitor to Delmonico's had appeared ready to do battle. The competitor to Delmonico's that crept in in the 1880s was Louis Sherry. Sherry was of French extraction, and he was born in St. Albans, Vermont in 1855. He had his first real job as a hotel busboy in Montreal, but came to New York to begin his true hospitality training. He worked at another of the famous Madison Square hotels in the restaurant of the Brunswick House, before becoming manager of the Hotel Elberon out on the Jersey Shore. Sherry was clearly a born marketer from the start, and he watched this newly moneyed clientele closely trying to give them what they wanted before 
they knew they wanted it. He opened his own restaurant, which continued to move uptown like everything and everyone else until he landed on Fifth Avenue at 44th Street by late 1898, which was where Delmonico's itself had landed just a year before. Sherry presented New York with a Stanford White-designed elegant French palace complete with reception and drawing rooms and a stunning ballroom. Now the two greatest restaurateurs were directly across the street from each other. New York's restaurant wars had officially begun. Louis Sherry, too, had a flair for the theatrical and really outdid himself, I have to say, at one particular and what was to become a very famous dinner, which took place in 1903. You could think of it as one last blast of Gilded Age ostentation. Millionaire and businessman C.K.G. Billings was an avid horseman. He'd inherited a gas company from which he made his millions, but he'd really rather be on the track. He built a stable overlooking the Hudson and a fine European-styled mansion in Upper Manhattan. Wanting to celebrate the opening of his stable, his plan was to throw a dinner for 36 of his friends in the stables themselves. Well, the press discovered his plan, and to avoid the press intrusion, he went to Sherry to ask that his host create a special dinner in Sherry's ballroom. No problem, Sherry replied, and Billings agreed to invite his guests instead to Sherry's for dinner. The 36 guests gathered in formal white tie to file into the room, and when they entered, they saw the room transformed into an English country pasture with fake turf and panels of painted scenery, and in the center were the horses. Saddled and ready for the diners to mount and receive their dinner on horseback served on silver trays fixed to the saddles. Each guest and the horse was assigned a groom to handle the service and make sure that the bottles of champagne in the saddlebags were kept chilled and the tubes stayed connected for riders to quench their thirst. Jockey waiters brought out course after course to be eaten on the silver trays anchored to the horse's backs in front of each rider. The menu began with caviar on toast points, followed by a turtle soup. The fish course featured trout with a sauce of shallots, chervil, and chives. Rack of lamb with glazed vegetables was presented as the meat course, and the whole meal ended with flambéed peaches and coffee. Now, in case you wondered how the horses got into this second-floor ballroom, it was an engineering feat performed with Sherry's staff, the freight elevator, and likely a special diet for the horses to, you know, prevent any mishaps. Lastly, and also in case you were also wondering... The price tag of all of this was approximately $1.4 million in today's money. Billings had paid just under $40,000 for each diner to have his table on horseback. I am sure Louis Sherry was very pleased. Now, the last dinner that I want to take you to to round out our little tour here of dining during the Gilded Age was, like the Swan Dinner and the Horseback Dinner, a real one. I'm going to take you into the ballroom of the famed Mrs. Astor herself, and we will attend together a ball and a supper, one of the very last that she ever gave. And thanks to our friend Louis Sherry, we know exactly what Mrs. Astor served at her ball this particular evening. She had hired him to cater it. And we have the notes from the original Sherry Catering Notebooks to look at today. 
Mrs. Astor was famous for her annual opera ball held on the first Monday night in January. For some, they had worked their social calendars the whole year to make sure that they received the coveted invitation handwritten on the heavy, elegant card. This particular ball took place on January 9th, 1899. An opera ball began, of course, with attending the opera, which Mrs. Astor didn't do on that night that she gave her ball. She remained in her mansion at 65th Street and 5th Avenue and awaited her guests, who began to arrive around 11 p.m. And just let me add, imagine the condition that you may have been in having just sat through the better part of Wagner's Lohengrin, which is what was on that night. Lohengrin clocks in at about four hours of music, and then you have to add in the intermissions, likely two of those. But then remember, you would have left long before the final curtain, as long as you put in an appearance, to make your way uptown to withstand attending the opera for several hours, followed by a ball until perhaps three o'clock in the morning, you had to have a constitution of steel and wear a corset. A ball supper was usually a buffet arrangement served continuously throughout the early hours of the morning with dishes replenished throughout the night. But not at Mrs. Astor's ball. She preferred a sit-down affair after a bit of dancing, of course, at around one in the morning. The menu, Sherry notes it was for 400 guests, of course, included a classic bouillon to start, followed by chicken in a Madeira sauce with truffles, followed by beef stuffed with mushrooms and potatoes, terrapin, of course, and then the famous canvas back duck, followed by pâté de foie gras, a salad of finely diced vegetables with probably more truffles, and a dessert of ice cream. One of the surprising things when you look at the menus, and I don't mean restaurant menus here, but I mean these menus from so many of these dinners in private mansions and homes, is just how unadventurous so many of these meals actually were. Two of the dishes that occur again and again are, as we've noted, the canvas back duck and the Maryland terrapin. If there were ever two signature dishes of the Gilded Age, it would have been these two. And of course, while they could in fact be delicious, it was mostly because they were very expensive to serve. A fact lost on no one. Depending on who you talk to, the Gilded Age died with the turn of the century or in some form dragged on until the outbreak of World War I in Europe. The institution of legislation that regulated wealth, the progressive movement under Roosevelt, and finally prohibition in 1919 capped most of the extravagance. It certainly helped save the Terrapin population. But as we now see, a certain Gilded Age exists even today, although perhaps without dinners of canvas back duck, plates of gold, diamond napkin rings, and live swans on your table. Unfortunately, photographic imagery is virtually non-existent of actual meals in the Gilded Age. What we have often shows dinners, almost always with men, sitting around enormous tables with empty plates. I, of course, wish we could see the food. And it all just makes me think what it would have looked like if Mrs. Astor had had an account on Instagram. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. I invite you to join the show as a patron by visiting patreon.com backslash The Gilded Gentleman. Your support truly helps me to continue to produce the show. And if you have enjoyed today's show, please leave a review as you know your calling card. 
don't you know? And join me in two weeks for the next episode. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? <laughs>